Tonight we want to study John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. This section gives us the dismissal of the traitor Judas. Last week we looked at the washing of the disciples' feet. And from that story, the washing of the disciples' feet, we gain four lessons. I'd like to suggest these four lessons to you quickly if you would like to write them down. And then we want to look at the dismissal of the traitor Judas. There are four lessons to be uh, gleaned, I believe, from the uh, story of the washing of the disciples' feet. The first is a ceremonial lesson. A ceremonial lesson. I mean by that, one bath, many basins. One bath, many basins. Jesus said to Peter, verse 9, verse 10, He that is bathed, taking a whole bath, does not need to take another bath. He needs only to rinse his feet, but is entirely clean. Then he goes on to say, you are clean, but not all. Now, obviously, Jesus had washed uh, Peter's feet, uh, Judah's feet. So, obviously, he didn't mean, he wasn't speaking of physical cleanliness. Jesus said, you are all clean except one of you, referring to Judas. But he'd washed Judah's feet. So, he could not have met, meant what kind of cleansing? Physical. He was referring to spiritual cleansing. In fact, he said, you don't know now what I am doing. You will know after, probably after Pentecost. Now, to what did he refer when Jesus said, he that's taken a whole bath doesn't need to take, need to take another whole bath. He needs only to rinse his feet. Well, what the Lord is driving at essentially is that sin does two things to me. First of all, uh, sin renders me guilty, places me under the wrath of God, and I need to be saved from the guilt of sin and the wrath of God and eternal punishment. Secondly, sin works down and corrupts me and pollutes me. And I need to be saved from the corruption and the pollution of sin. How many of you have ever sung that hymn, Rock of Ages, Clef for Me? You remember what it says? Rock of Ages, Clef for Me? Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flows be of sin the double cure, saved from guilt and wrath, and saved from pollution. Make me pure. Now, salvation from the guilt of sin is called justification. Salvation from the pollution of sin is called sanctification. Salvation from the guilt of sin is instantaneous, once for all, never to be repeated. He that's taken a whole bath doesn't need to take another bath. Once for all, irrepeatable, never needs to be done again. He that's taken a whole bath doesn't need to repeat it. But sanctification is a process. It's repeatable. So that every day when I get out in life, uh, uh, I need to start out by reading the Word of God to serve as a preventative from sin. Then as I walk through life and I overhear a dirty story, or I turn on the television and see something salacious and seductive, or I see on the newsstand something seductive, and that evil thought is sold into my mind. I need to deal with it right then. Not wrong for that evil thought to come to the mind. I can't help that. I can help toying with it and thinking about it. That's sin. I can't help it coming 
but I can help toying with it. Now, what's the preventative? It's the word of God. And I go through this world, and I'm contaminated by the sinfulness of this world and by my old nature. And I need daily cleansing from that. So Jesus said, he that's taken a whole bath doesn't need to take a whole bath again. He only needs to rinse his feet. Or to put it as I have put it, one bath, many bases. Can you say that with me? One bath, many bases. That means I only need to be saved once. I only need to go to Calvary once. But I need to go to the basin of restoration every day and probably every hour. I need to practice, as someone said, instant confession. Now, the second lesson is a lesson on self-abasing service. The second lesson is a lesson on self-abasing service. Jesus gave that in John chapter 13 and 14 and 15. You call me master, Lord. You say, well, for so I am. By then, your Lord and master washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an what? Example that you should do as I've done it. Jesus gave us an example here, and we are to follow it. Well, what kind of an example did Jesus give us? Well, essentially, it's an example in self-abasing service. Now, you know what I mean by self-abasing? Voluntary self-abasing service. Jesus Christ came among us not to be ministered unto, but to minister. That word in Mark 10, 45 <coughs> means serve, not minister. You know, when we use the word minister, when the King James used the word minister, it means what we mean by serve. When we use the word minister, we think of somebody who wears the collar around the other way, see, or it's called reverend. But that's not what the Bible means by minister. Normally, the word minister is used of a servant. Jesus said, the Son of Man, I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, elsewhere, Jesus said, I am among you as one that serves. Philippians chapter 2. He who exists in the form of God thought it not robbery of equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. Servant. And he was with us as servant. The motive for that, John 13, 1, is love. The aim of service is to help others spiritually. And the demand, which is very hard, and very hard in our success-oriented age, the demand is self-abasement. It takes something to get down on your knees and wash somebody else's feet, doesn't it? Self-abasing service. And I would suggest that perhaps when you go overseas, especially to places like India, and see their churches. There are a lot of things in our churches which their churches do not have. But there's one quality that, that impresses you in their churches and in overseas churches, which perhaps we lack. And that is this attitude of service. You see, the faculty and the president at Mid-South Bible College is here to serve the students, not to lord it over them. And a pastor is to serve his flock, not to lord it over them to serve them. Now, that doesn't mean he's a messenger boy. That doesn't mean when the deacons bark, he's to jump. 
It doesn't mean that. But he's to serve their spiritual interests. To be among them is one that serves. And Jesus had this servant attitude. And I dare say that one thing that we need to inculcate upon ourselves and in our assemblies today is this attitude of service to other people. That's true in the whole. The father that catches this, and usually, you know, he's married 20 years before he catches it. The father that catches it is going to be a better father. And the child is going to live from, learn from his daddy. And the church, whose members learn that service attitude, is going to be the church that God is going to bless. And the school, service. To be a service to other people, to help them. Even a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. A lesson on service. Then there's a lesson, third, on foot washing. Foot washing. What is that lesson on foot washing? Well, I don't think he's giving us here a third ordinance. I don't think that we have three ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and foot washing, although I have no argument with those who want to observe it as an ordinance. But I don't think it is an ordinance. Jesus didn't institute it as an ordinance. We don't find it practiced regularly in the church. I don't think it's an ordinance. But Jesus said, I've given you an example that you should do not what I did, but as, as I did it. Now, have you ever engaged in foot washing? How many of you ever engaged in foot washing? Well, probably half of you have without knowing. See? What is foot washing? Well, let's get the symbols. What are the symbols? The feet speak of conduct. Conduct. And the dirty feet speak of conduct that has been sullied by failure and sin. Dirty feet. The water, the basin, and the water speak of the word of God. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. The water and the basin is the symbol of the word of God. And washing the feet speak of the application of the word of God to a sullied, impure conduct. You know the New Testament verse on this? Well, let's look at it. Galatians 6.1. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Here's a case of spiritual foot washing. Galatians 6.1. May I say to you while you're turning there that we practice foot washing here at Mid-South Bible College. And every pastor is going to have to practice foot washing in his church. <clears throat> the kind of foot washing I think that Jesus had in mind and that Paul has in mind, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, Galatians 6.1, brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such an one, that is, wash his feet. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That's spiritual foot washing. I find a young man, and you have to engage it with your children. And you have to engage it with students at Mid-South Bible College. And every pastor is going to have to engage in spiritual foot washing. We see a student, perhaps, who's fallen out. His attitude is getting increasingly worse. He's harboring something against other students. He's falling away and doing poorly in his work, lapsing off. Then we have to call it in and sit down and talk with him about it. See? 
and take the Word of God and apply it to his personal situation. And a pastor has to do that and to help him with that ministry of the water of God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean that I go around the church and look for all the people I want to wash feet, see. That means when occasion arises, that means when my life is right with God, not perfect, but right with the Lord. That means that I am spiritual in the right sense of the term, in stature. There's spiritual stature. I know what I'm doing. It means that I do it in the spirit of humility, knowing that I could fall prey to the same thing, that I'm not about. And that means if I'm going to wash his feet, that when I minister to him, I get down on my knees, figuratively speaking. That's spiritual foot washing. Now, do you know it's hard? It's hard. Which is harder in the whole? To discipline a boy, to spend the hours to discipline him, to straighten him up, or just to let him run? Which is harder? Well, you know which is harder. Discipline him. That takes time and patience. To let him run is easy. But if you let him run wild, then he goes up wild. The discipline takes time and effort, perseverance. It takes tact and diplomacy. You know, the great tendency of the Father in Ephesians chapter 4 is to come on too hard. To come on, to demand too much. You know, all fathers want their boys to, get, to, to grow up in one year what it took them 20 years to do. Amen. All fathers have that attitude. They want them to grow in, 20, in one year what it took them 20 years to get to. You just don't do it. They need patience. But having said all that, you need to engage in some spiritual foot washing. But they need to be careful. To be sure that I'm led of the Lord. I first got into a pastorate when I got out of seminary down in Lamarck, Texas, way down south of Houston, about 13 miles north of Galveston, Paul's Union Church. And uh, uh, another man was there. Paul wasn't there at the time, <laughs> but another man was there. You'll catch that. But uh, anyway, uh, down at Paul's Union Church, and I remember there was a man across the way, across from where I was staying. I was single, staying in a little small, um, very, very small house, very small. And um, across the way was the man, his wife, may have had some children, I'm not sure. But the man got off into sin. He was a member of a certain church, had been a member of good standing, but he got away from the Lord, got involved in a, in a sin, well known. I remember two deacons went to that man. Now, I remember looking over across my, out my window one morning, and they got, the two deacons got him, and Outside, when it was finished, they had him down on the front lawn praying with him about that matter. I trust they did it right. I believe they did. That's hard. That's difficult. But, my friend, it's necessary. Spiritual foot washing. But in a spirit of humility, recognizing that I am also frail and with the aim not of winning an argument or a point, but a restoring a brother to usefulness and service. And there's a valid place for it. That's a lesson on foot washing. The fourth lesson is a lesson on Christian joy. Look at John chapter 13, verse 17. Lesson on Christian joy. John 13, verse 17. Let's start with verse 15. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, 
happy are you if you could pass an exam on them? Happy are you if you do what? Yeah, the secret of joy is doing it. You know, I can know them, I can memorize them, I can pass an exam on them, I can go with flying colors. But the secret to joy is doing that, walking in the path of obedience. And I have found, my friends, that when it's boils down and we get down to basics, that the Christian life really is very simple. When I say very simple, I mean I, it's simple to understand what I need to know. It's not simple to lead it. It means a lot of heartaches and staying with it and perseverance. But I mean by simple, I mean that it's simple to know what God expects of me. And the key to it is obedience. The lady under whom I was one to Christ was a returned Methodist missionary, Miss Alice Lynham. And every summer, she had a little party for all the kids that were taking her classes, about 300 of them. And she, we had always eat ice cream with chopsticks. <laughs> Two things stand out. We ate ice cream with chopsticks, and we sang a hymn, her favorite hymn, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, that's simple, isn't it? But it's absolutely true. It's true. What is the secret to joy and blessing? Trust and obey. What is the path of blessing? The path of obedience. I read something, I don't like it. Doesn't make any difference. It rubs me the wrong, it doesn't make any difference. I don't think I get, yes, if God commands it, you can do it. Obedience, that's the secret. First verse I taught my older children was 1 Samuel 15, 23, not John 3, 16. John 3, 16 is God so loved the world. They'll learn that. 1 Samuel 15, 23 is to obey is better than to serve as a deacon. To obey is better than to preach. To obey, and it is. To obey is better than to preach. To obey is better than to tithe. To obey is better than to be a deacon. To obey is better than to know all the Bible. What's the secret of blessing? Obedience. Now, I've got to know these things. Jesus said in verse 17, you've got to do two things. What are they? Know them and do them. Before I do them, I've got to know them. But when I know them, that's not enough. I've got to do them. That's the secret to Christian joy. All right, so much for the first preparation, the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, let's get to the second thing in the preparation. And that's the dismissal of the traitor. The dismissal of the traitor. Now, you may ask, why have we used this word preparation? Well, let me explain that. If you will look up here. John chapter 13, verse 31, to chapter 16, 33. In John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus Christ is going to tell his disciples, instruct his disciples in some of the deepest, most intimate truths in all the Bible. Many men say that John 14 to 16 is post-Pentecost truth. That what Jesus gave to his disciples in John 14, 15, and 16 anticipates the cross and anticipates Pentecost and anticipates the ministry of the Holy Spirit, post-Pentecost. And you won't find any more profound truth on the Christian life than in John 14, 15 to 16. Now, the man that hears it has got to be in the right spiritual attitude. 
So Jesus had to do two things to get them in the right attitude. Number one, when they came to the Passover supper, as Luke tells us, they were all striving about who's going to have the first place. Who's going to be number one in the kingdom? I am, I am, I am. And that meeting was racked by strife and dissension. Jesus couldn't tell them what was on his heart as long as there was that kind of spirit to be among them. Have you ever had to teach or preach where there's animosity and strife among people? Have you ever had to preach to a congregation or teach a Sunday school class where some lady was at loggerheads with another lady and the class was small? Or some man was at loggerheads with another man and you could cut it with a knife? You can't get to first base in an atmosphere like that. See? And that was the atmosphere. And Jesus had to clear it up. You know how he cleared it up? By getting down on his knees and washing their feet. Telling them that their whole attitude was wrong. Not, what can I get? But what can I give? Not lorded over, but served. So he dealt with their attitude. The second thing he had to do, he couldn't teach them what was on his heart as long as there was a traitor in the midst. So he had to wash their feet to get them in the right frame of mind, and he had to dismiss the traitor. Now, we've already looked at the first one. We want to look at the second one. The dismissal of the traitor, John chapter 13, verses 18 to 30. This takes place on the night before the crucifixion, takes place in the upper room. I reviewed the course of events last time, did I not? Did I not? I think I did. They went, uh, arrived on Thursday, late Thursday afternoon at the upper room. There was a strife going on in the disciples. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They eat the Paschal Supper. Then Jesus announces and declares the betrayer. And then Judas goes out. After Judas goes out, Jesus Christ institutes the Lord's Supper, foretells the, the fall of Peter, gives them that beautiful farewell discourse in John 14 to 16, leaves the upper room, and on the way east, prays that intercessory prayer found in John 17, crosses the river Kedron on the east of Jerusalem, climbs up to the side of, of the Mount of Olives, and there agonizes in the garden. There's betrayed. There's taken in for his trial. Now, that's the background to the dismissal of the traitor. The betrayer, of course, is Judas. He's one of the 12 apostles, traveled with Jesus. Now, Judas, <clears throat> what was the motive in Judas casting his lot in with Jesus? See, we got two questions we have to answer come to Judas. Number one, why did Judas cast in his lot with Jesus? What was his motive? And secondly, why did Jesus choose Judas knowing what he was going to do? Now, we're going to answer that in the course, but I want to answer that first one. What was the motive in Judas casting in his lot with Jesus? Well, Judas had high hopes of cashing in on the kingdom, the political kingdom, that he thought Jesus was going to bring in. Judas was motivated by an economic motive. It was John Beard that introduced into the writing of American history what he called the economic theory. And that, and, and, and that theory which he introduced simply stated that all men's actions are motivated by money and that the Constitution was written 
for economic, to protect certain economic interests and out of economic motives. And he changed a whole lot of the writing of history. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that, not to the Constitution, but in a lot of actions of men, I think obviously they're prompted by economic motives. First church I went to as assistant pastor of the same church. A man came down and established his practice, joined the church for six months, established connections, and then nobody ever saw him again after six months. He used the church, an economic motive. Now, why did Judas join the 11 disciples? Purely economic reasons. He thought Jesus was going to bring in the political kingdom. He didn't understand what John the Baptist said when John said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. He didn't catch that. He just thought of the political kingdom and a new king. And he would sit up at the top with this king and garner in all that money. And he was motivated by purely economic motives. And he became the treasurer of the company. The company needed such a man, and Judas served as the treasurer. His betrayal is predicted in Psalm 49 and in Psalm 69. And Jesus predicted it in John chapter 6. The motive, in one word, is A-B-A-R-I-C-E. Not money. See, money, money is amoral, isn't it? Money is neither moral nor immoral. I open my wallet and pull out a dollar bill, but that's all I got. That dollar bill is neither moral nor immoral. It's neither moral nor immoral. It's amoral, neither moral nor immoral. My attitude toward it and the usage to what I put determines the morality or the immorality. Now, it wasn't money that was wrong. It was the attitude of Judas, and that attitude was avarice. And it's an attitude that motivates most of us at times, whether we're rich or poor. Whatever our state may be, avarice. And that's the thing that motivated Judas. Now, let me go ahead and answer the other question. Why do you think Jesus put Judas in as a treasure? He knew that Judas had this problem, didn't he? He knew that Judas had trouble with avarice. Knowing that Judas had trouble with avarice, knowing that avarice was the Achilles heel of Judas, why did Jesus make him the treasurer. Wasn't that only tempting Judas? Wasn't that seducing him? No, it wasn't. It was giving to Judas. Are you listening? It was giving to Judas under the most favorable circumstances an opportunity to conquer this vicious habit. Here it was. He's going to have to conquer it one day. So Jesus gave to Judas the opportunity under the most favorable circumstances while he's with Jesus Christ, while he's with the other disciples, while he's under the teaching of Christ, under the most favorable circumstances, Jesus gave him an opportunity to conquer his worst habit. Let me put it in other terms. Suppose you got a bad habit, which you do. All of us do. Suppose you got a bad habit. Suppose you've been wrestling with it. Suppose it defeated you again and again and again. And let us say you would like to conquer. What are the circumstances you would like to have in order to conquer? 
Would you like to be cast with a group of ungodly men who engage in the same habit to conquer it? Or would you like to be with Jesus Christ and his company to conquer it? Well, the answer to the question, I mean, I answered the question already, I don't know. See, Jesus gave, he knew what he had. He knew his problem average. So he gave him this money to bring, you know what a doctor does when you got a boil? He puts on that boil that's underneath the skin. What do you call that thing? A poultice? Is that what you call it? Poultice? Is that what you call it? And, and it comes out. Comes out. Comes out. Why? So you can deal with it. So Jesus gave that money, that treasury position to Judas, to bring that boil out so he could deal with it and conquer it. He failed. He failed. But he gave him an opportunity in the most circum favorable circumstances to deal with it. Judas, therefore, did not deal with it, made a bargain to betray Judas, and sold him to the Sanhedrin, left the upper room, went to the Sanhedrin that night, while Jesus went out to the garden, brought the Sanhedrin there, and they, they brought him in for trial and put him to death. Now, when we come to Judas, there are two extremes. One extreme says that Judas was the devil. That was a view that was popularized by G. Campbell Morgan. He's God. The Bible says that the Satan, the devil, entered into Judas. And it would be hard for the devil to enter into himself, wouldn't it? So Judas is not the devil. The other extreme is to exonerate to say that Judas was a victim of his circumstances. The Bible never does. And when the Bible writes the last word on Judas, it says that Judas went to his own place. He's responsible for what he did. Now, there are three things here. Let's look at them quickly. First of all, the traitor is announced in verses 18 to 20. Secondly, the traitor is identified in 21 to 26. And third, the traitor is dismissed in 27 to 30. Let me read those three things once again. Although they're on that outline I handed out last week, I believe. Three things. Number one, the traitor announced. The traitor announced. 18 to 20. John 13, 18 to 20. The traitor announced. Number two, the traitor identified. Verses 21 to 26, the traitor identified. Verses 21 to 26. And third, the traitor dismissed. 27 to 30. The traitor dismissed. That's one word, dismissed. I'm not saying that man and dismissed. <laughs> the traitor dismissed. The traitor dismissed. 27 to 30. I come from the West Coast, and occasionally people have 20, the announcement of the betrayer. It's done in somewhat ambiguous terms. He identifies them in the next stage. Verse 18, 19, 20. I speak not of you all. That reflects back to verse 17. You know these things. Happy are ye if you do them. Yet, I don't speak of all of you. There's one who's not going to be happy. Because I know whom I've chosen. I know whom I've chosen, chosen to the apostolate. I know whom I've chosen. I know that one of you is going to betray me. It's not going to catch me off guard. 
I know whom I've chosen, but I've chosen him that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel to kick me against me. Now, I tell you before it come to pass, that when it's come to pass, you may believe that I am he, and he is an italic. You may believe that I am the Jehovah of the Old Testament. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receives whomsoever I send receives me, and he that receives me receives him that sends me. Now what the Lord Jesus is saying this, I'm telling you right now that I know whom I've chosen. I know Peter. I know the character of Peter. I told him what it was. I know the character of John. I know the character of Thomas, doubting. I know the character of Nathaniel, behold a man whom there is no guile. I know the character of Judas. He didn't say that. What he said, I know the character of each one of you. And I know the character of someone who's going to betray me. And I'm telling you now, because when it happens and I'm betrayed by somebody with whom you travel for 24, 26, 28 months, it's going to it's going to knock you off your feet. It's going to be a tremendous pressure against you that one of your companies has betrayed me and put me to death. Your faith will be shaken. So I'm telling you right now that I know that one of you is going to betray me so that when it does take place, your faith will be strengthened. You will be able to say, our master knew all about this. He called the shot. He didn't catch him off guard. And therefore, when you go out to preach, you'll be able to preach with authority. Because whomsoever I send, verse 20, goes with my authority, and whomsoever the Father sends goes with his authority. That's the thrust of verse 20. Secondly, the traitor identified, 21 to 26. The apostles, of course, were taken back by this. You remember when Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I, the Son of Man, going to go up to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be crucified, be buried. You know what Peter said? This be far from thee, Lord. Never. He couldn't believe that. Now, to add to that, Jesus now tells them that one who eats bread with me is going to lift up his heel against me to destroy him. That staggers him. So, verse 20 to 26, 21 to 26, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled. The very thought that one of his close associates, one of his own elect twelve, was going to betray him, troubled his human spirit. And Jesus was a real man. He was troubled, testified, and said, Verily I, verily I say unto you, that one of you, shall be traitors. See, in verse 18 and 19, now you listening? He put it in ambiguous terms. He simply quoted an Old Testament passage and said, he that lifts, he that eats bread with me shall lift up his heel against me. Now that's ambiguous, isn't it? You don't hardly understand. You hardly understand what that means. The disciples did. It was ambiguous. Now he states that bold Franklin, one of you is going to betray me. You know how that drops? Like a bombshell. Like a bombshell. So he said to them, verse 21, one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples 
horrified by this thought. The disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spake. They began to raise soul searching. This is good. They began to search their own souls. And there are three questions they raised. Now, we're not going to look at them. You just look here and listen. Matthew 26, 22, they say, Is it I, Lord? That's a wholesome self-distrust. That's good. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? Which recognizes that my soul, although redeemed, is capable of the grossest sin. Whatever sin you read in the Memphis Commercial Appeal, I am capable of doing and so are you. That's a wholesome self-destruct. Lord, is it I? You know what we perhaps would have done? Lord, it's he. See? No. They were so taken aback by that. What did they say? Lord, is it I? Matthew 26. Then later on, Matthew 26, a second question. Listen. Judas said, surely not I, Master. That's rank hypocrisy. He was saying that for public relations effect. He wanted to get the blame off him. Surely not I, Master. Then in John 13, 25, they said, who is it? Like childlike confidence. They asked these three questions. So, verse 22, then the disciples looked at one another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. When they ate in those dinners, they... They didn't eat sitting up like you and I sit up. They ate at a table that that uh, was built in this fashion. We can get the right colors, like you. And they would they were around the outside. You know, you see the Lord's Supper painted up there, and they're all sitting up in straight up chairs. They didn't sit that way. They reclined on couches. Often, uh, uh, three people could sit on a couch like this, around here. And instead of sitting straight up, they tended to recline on the left arm and then eat with this right arm. They were uh, supported underneath by pillows and had their feet extending away from the pillow. Now that means that the head of the other man would be in the chest, the bosom, the chest of the person on his left. And that apparently is where John was. Peter was right on the elmhead. Peter couldn't speak to Jesus that is, he could speak to him, but he didn't want to say it loud enough for the rest of them to hear. So Peter kind of shifts his head over and says to John, <laughs> ask him, you see, only he said it a lot more soberly, I can guarantee you. He said to him, ask our master who it is. So John leaned over and quietly said to Jesus, who is it? Who is it? Who is it? Look at verse 23. Now that was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. That's the author of this gospel, John. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he, John, should ask the Lord Jesus who it should be of whom he spoke. He, John, then lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. When he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And thus he identified it. Now the sop was a piece, probably a piece of what we call bread. Maybe one of those Passover sheets, piece of bread. 
And they had stew out in the center. And you took that piece of bread and dipped it into the stew. And often, not always, but often, they would give it to the, a close friend or to a guest of honor. So Jesus said to John, I'm going to dip the sop in. And when I dip the sop in and take it out, to whomsoever I give the sop, that is the betrayer. Now, why didn't he tell everybody? He didn't. Why didn't he tell everybody? Well, he didn't tell everybody because Jesus wanted them to continue in a good spiritual exercise. And that's the exercise of soul searching. Am I truly right with God? Soul searching. And the second reason, he wanted to give Judas another opportunity to repent and to trust him. And if he let all of them know it, he could. We say, why did he even tell the two? He wanted to tell the two so that when it took place and Judas betrayed him, two of them would know that Jesus Christ had called his shot. And he wasn't taken by surprise. So he told the two of them who it was. Then in verses 27 to 30, he dismisses the traitor. Judas had received the sop, which, by the way, was the last final loving appeal of Jesus Christ to Judas. He gave him the sop. Judas received the sop, but refused the grace. And so in the final act begins, verse 27. After the sop, Satan entered into Judas. Then said Jesus unto him, What thou doest, do more quickly. Now what is the command to do it? Jesus wasn't inviting him to sin. But once Judas had made up his mind to do it, Jesus said, I'm working on a plan. Now what you're going to do says you decide to do it. Despite every appeal I've given to you, what you're going to do, you're going to do. Go ahead and do it. Do it quickly. Now no man, verse 29, <clears throat> knew for what intent he spoke this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, that Jesus said unto them, buy those things that we have need of for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. You say, well, didn't Peter and John know it? No, not necessarily. They knew that Judas was going to betray them. But all they saw was Jesus said to Judas, go out and do what you're going to do quickly. And they thought, why, well, he's gone out to buy something, not to betray him now. So they didn't suspect it either. Nobody knew. Then verse 30, one of the darkest verses in all the Bible. Comparable to Matthew 25, 41. He then, Judas, having received the salt, went immediately out. And it was night. Not only physically, but also spiritually. Here was the dark night of Judas' soul. He went out into the night. Now I want to close by asking a couple of questions and then drawing some lessons and we will be through. Question. Who was Judas? Well, as I mentioned, there are two extremes. Some men say that Judas is the devil. Campbell Morgan said that. I don't believe that. Some men say that Judas was not really responsible. He was simply trying to help Jesus bring in the kingdom. I don't believe that either. Judas was simply a man with a weakness. A weakness that a lot of people in Memphis have today. What was that weakness? Avarice. 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 
and it conquered him rather than he conquering it. Second question, was Judas ever saved? No. No, he wasn't. John chapter 13, verse 10. At the end of it, you are all clean, but not all of you. No, Judas is not saved. Question number three, did Judas later repent? No, he did not. He was remorseful, but he didn't repent. He was remorseful for being caught, but he didn't repent for what he did. True repentance includes the acknowledgement of my sin, the heinousness of it, and the guilt of it, and the determination to break it. True repentance is a change of mind followed by a change of conduct. The word repent is meta noeo. Noeo comes from the word nous, N-O-S, which means the mind. Meta means change. And meta noeo means a change of the mind. I thought this about myself. I thought I was pretty good. I thought my works had gained my, uh, my access to heaven. I thought I was right with God. I thought that Jesus is a good man, but not God. And surely nobody needed his death to save them. But then one day, I read the Bible, and the Spirit of God brought the truth of God to my heart and soul, and I changed my mind. Met a Noel, repent. I acknowledged I'm a sinner, lost and undone. I acknowledged that Jesus is God's Son who died for me. And I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and that was followed by a change of life. There was no repentance on the part of, of uh, Judas. Now, another question. Are you listening? Here's a hard one. Was Judas compelled to do what he did? If the Old Testament predicted that Judas would betray Jesus, and if Jesus chose him, knowing that he would betray him, did Judas act freely when he betrayed Jesus? Or was he simply an automaton? Well, the answer to that is that God, Jesus Christ, knew that Judas would betray him. It was within the plan of God. Yet at the same time, when Judas acted, he acted freely and responsibly. My students in my classes will not pass the course if they do not memorize and learn a little statement. An event may be both certain and free. Is it certain that God will always tell the truth? What do you think? Do you think it's possible for God to lie? What does the Bible say? It's impossible for God to... God always with certainty tells the truth. It's certain. Inevitable. Can't happen any other way. And yet when God tells the truth, he tells it freely. He tells it freely. He's not forced. How about the saints in heaven? What do you think the saints in heaven are doing tonight? What will the saints in heaven do throughout all eternity? In one word, what will they do? Worship God. Praise God. Worship God. Worship God. Does worship take the emotions, love? Yes. Does, motion, does worship take the intellect? Yes. Does worship take the will? If it doesn't, it's not worship. So when the saints worship God, they do it freely. When the saints worship God, they do it as free moral agents. They do it freely. But I want to tell you something. The saints who are worshiping God are certain to worship. 
Nobody's going to sin in heaven and fall down to hell. They have been confirmed in the state of integrity. It's certain that they will worship God. Yet when they worship God, they worship him freely. An event can be both certain and... Now, half of you understand that, and half of you don't, see. But let me say something. You better think about it. Because that's the solution, may I say to you, that's the solution to the problem of the sovereignty of God and the free moral responsibility of man. An event can be both certain and free. And I tell the students, secondly, don't worry about the certainty. That's God's job. Worry about the freedom. Freedom to do what? Freedom to believe on Christ. Freedom and responsibility to witness for Christ. Freedom and responsibility to carry the gospel to the far ends of the earth. Freedom and the responsibility to pray, to read my Bible. The rule of my duty, said Charles Hodge, is not the decrees of God, but the commands of God. And when Judas acted, God knew it. Jesus wasn't caught off guard. It was within the plan of God. But when he did it, he did it freely. Freely. So the Bible says, so Judas said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And Jesus said, what thou doest, thou doest. And Acts 1, Judas went to his own place. Judas went to Hades. He will go to hell. It's his own place. Why didn't the Bible say that Judas went to hell? The Bible wanted to underscore the fact that what Judas chose, he chose freely. He went to his own place. If any man goes to hell, he goes to his own place. If a man goes to hell, he doesn't go there because he's not one of the elect. He goes there because he chooses freely to refuse Christ and to go there. Judas went to his own place. Judas, therefore, was responsible. Now let me close with the lesson. Three warnings. Three warnings. Three warnings in the life of Judas. The first warning, this story warns us against the false idea that all that men need is instruction. This story warns us against the false idea that all that men need is instruction. Now, in America, that was popularized by a man by the name of Horace Bushnell. I have one or two of his books in my library. And that's popular today, that a man is educated into the Christian faith, that all that a man needs is education, and he'll turn out right. I sat in a, history, in a philosophy class at a university one time, and the man who was an, uh, virtually an atheist that was his premise, that if a man knows right and is educated right, he will act right. And it was after World War II, and I raised the question in class, well, if there was any nation that was advanced intellectually, it was the Germans. But they gave us the Nazis and the murder of six million Jews. There was no fault in their education. Well, he said it wasn't the right kind of education. Well, that's always kind of a loophole to slip out of, you know. Well, that's popular. Man's educated, then it's all right, and he can be educated. No. Did Judas have enough instruction? Yes. Do you think Judas was well instructed two years at the feet of Jesus? 
one of the twelve serves as a treasure. Yet despite all of this, Judas was lost. Education never takes the place of regeneration. Man needs more than education. Second warning I have here. Second warning is a warning against permitting evil habits to go unchecked. Second warning is a warning against evil habits, permitting evil habits to go unchecked. You let a boy that's six, seven years old get away with a bad temper and don't discipline it and let it grow and let it grow, you know what he's going to do at 25? Probably end up maiming somebody for life or killing somebody. That temper goes unchecked. Man has avarice, the man lies. If a boy lies at six and seven, and he's not disciplined, and he grows up lying, not disciplined, he's going to get to the place where he doesn't know the difference between truth and lie. If a man thinks sensually and imbues his mind with sensual thoughts, it won't be long before he engages them. If a man thinketh, so is he. Now, I let sin get into my life, don't check it, it'll destroy you. Years and years ago, when I first began preaching, I heard a story I've never forgotten. A story about an incident that took place in London, England. There was a man who got a python or one of these large snakes from India, had trained it, had trained that snake to wrap itself around his body. And, you know, the audience would out there would gasp in horror, but he was able to stop it. One night, he got up the stage in London, went through his act, and the snake wound itself around him, but did not stop. Began to tighten down on him. The man began to scream, but the audience all thought it was part of the act. They thought he was just a member of a rock and roll band. They thought it was part of the act. And he screamed and screamed and screamed. And while he was screaming, and the audience was watching, the snake choked the man to death. The man had played with the snake. He held the snake. He was the master of the snake. But one day the snake mastered him and conquered him and destroyed him. And that is the way it is with the spirit. And you read it in the papers all the time. And you see it in life. Even with Christians. Christians don't deal with a sin in their life. And it grows and grows and grows until it's too hard and destroys their usefulness and testimony. And I went to school with fellows today who are on the shelf. By the grace of God and only by the grace of God, I am not on the shelf today. Only by the grace of God. But I know some fellows who are on the shelf, were great, capable, very talented young men to preach the gospel. But they didn't watch them happen. And they didn't watch their association with the opposite. And they slipped, got off, and today they're on the shelf for God. That's a tragedy, but happens. And here's a warning to check and conquer heaven when it's small enough. And the third warning is a warning against presumption. A warning against presumption. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? The warning against presumption. I mean by that that a person can go through all the forms and all the ceremonies and all the motions recite the creed, say the words, sing the hymns, pray the prayers, answer the questions that are asked, and still not 
be born again. Judas could give all the answers. He went through all the motions. How many of the apostles suspected that it was Judas? Not one. But on a good front, not one. But when it came down to it, Judas was lost. He'd never been regenerated. A warning against presumption. And that's a warning that's underwritten to us all through the history of the church. Whether it's Martin Luther or Augustine or John Wesley. Written again and again. That a man can presume that he's a Christian because he's gone through the motions, perhaps even preached, prayed, studied the Bible, gone to Mid-South Bible College. What makes a man a Christian is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think with this I close. You listening to me now? Let me say this in closing. I think of two people in the Bible. One is Judas, one is Lot. Judas tells us, don't presume on anybody. Lot tells us, don't pass judgment on anybody. How many of us would thought from the Old Testament that Lot was a truly saved man? I wouldn't. All I had was the Old Testament. I'd say Lot was an unsaved man. Why, he ended his life in the street, up on the mount, having sexual relationships with his daughter. He can't be saved. But when I go to 2 Peter 2, I find that he was a justified man. That warns me, don't judge anybody. And when I go to a funeral of an unbeliever, I don't push him into hell. I don't judge him into hell. That's not my place. Don't judge anybody. At the same time, Judas tells me, don't presume on anybody. Just because he went to Mid-South Bible College or Dallas Seminary or wherever it might be, just because he goes to a, this church or that or preaches or serves a deacon does not automatically mean that he or she is a Christian. Don't presume on anybody. And these are the lessons that the life of Judas tells you. All right.